You're listening to the Deal Farm Podcast with Ken Corsini. Educating, inspiring, and connecting you to real estate deals. And now, your host, Ken Corsini. Hey, this is Ken Corsini with The Deal Farm on today's Best Deal Ever episode. I'm joined by Ryan Stuman. Ryan is actually the CEO of Hardcore Closer out of Dallas, Texas. He's got an incredibly interesting story. He's sort of done everything. Uh, he really got to start in sales, though, as a loan originator. And then he's done a lot of house flipping along the way. But now he runs a mastermind specifically teaching people how to sell. So I'm really excited to talk about sales and marketing with him. So Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, what's up, Ken? Thanks for uh, for having me on here, man. We're going to well, talk all about some real estate flipping. Absolutely, man. Well, that and we, I want to talk about some sales and marketing. You know, we got a lot of folks on this podcast you know, who are trying to figure out how to acquire properties, and it really does boil down to marketing and selling yourself, and that's something that's super applicable, something you specialize in, so I'm really excited about this interview. Yeah, absolutely, man. It is, uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I got some good knowledge I'll share with you guys. So before you got into, you know, the marketing side of things, I, I know you had been in the mortgage business. Maybe just give us a little bit of your backstory. Cool. Well, I, uh, I, I've never had a salaried or a, like, I've never been paid. I've never had a salaried job. I've never been, uh, taking a paid vacation or a sick day that I got paid for. I've been a commission only salesperson my entire life since I was 13 years old. <laughs> nice. And, um, uh, I started out selling car washes when I was 13 and, and I did that until I was about 22. And the, the thing about car washes is I, I live in Dallas, Texas. And so that's, this is where I grew up. And unlike most people around here, I get out all the time. Don't think it's like, Oh man, it's like this hometown boy that never left. Like I love living here. <laughs> I travel all the time and Texas is in the middle of the country. So I'm only a couple of hours from everywhere. And DFW is a huge international hub. So that's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. But anyway, <laughs> I was, uh, I was sell car washes. And the thing with the car washes though, is sometimes here in Texas, we would wash as many as 1500 cars in a day Holy cow. in just one day. And I, it was my job to talk to all those people. So in a 10 hour day, that's roughly 150 cars an hour. So I had to get my pitch down to where it was simple, fast, effective, and understandable so it was easy for them to make a decision as a young man i didn't really understand what i was doing as i got older i can look back now and, and as a trainer and stuff take it apart but it gave me you know we would wash sometimes three or four thousand cars in a month and i did this for 10 years of my life and so i don't know how many sales i've made because you know even just asking somebody that wants a ten dollar wash if they want a fifteen dollar one mm -hmm. it's still a sale and, and i get so many reactions that it just man it it took the natural energy that I have and made me a really good salesperson to the point that somebody in 2002 or 2003, uh, a customer of the car wash was like, you know, every time I come in here, you sell me some stuff. Why don't you come work for me? Quit working for the car wash here. And, uh, and I did. And I got into the mortgage business. And within like my first 60 days in the mortgage business, I'd made like 20 grand. And, uh, you know, which used to take me, you know, pretty much a half a year to make at the car wash. So I was hooked. And then uh, 2005, Started flipping properties, made made a little over seven hundred grand in two thousand and five from flipping properties. That and and was still doing mortgages and flipping properties. But in two thousand and ten, I uh, I lost my ability to originate mortgages. I got in some trouble here in Texas. There's like this rule with guns. The rule is you can have whatever gun you want. 
And uh, but the ATF, they just like don't follow those rules. But nobody gives you the uh, the like pamphlet that says, oh, hey, these guns are legal in Texas. But in the event that the ATF or the game warden or any other federal agency happens to stumble across you, you could be in trouble with them. But so I got in trouble and I lost my and because the firearms charge, they wouldn't give me a, a federal mortgage license. And, you know, I was kind of I was devastated. I, I, I'd spent my whole career. All I knew was how to wash a car and sell a home. Wow, you know, it's like, that was it. Yeah, I didn't yeah. realize that they could take away your your mortgage license just from from an ATF charge like that. That's crazy. No, no. Well, so it's it it's a little bit more complicated than that. So like, let's just take like marijuana in uh, Denver, right in Colorado, right now. Right, right. If I walk down the street in Denver with a duffel bag with you know fifty pounds of pot, and the Denver police officer is like, "Hey, where are you going?" It's like, oh, "I'm delivering this to the dispensary over there." They're like, "Okay, carry on." <laughs> you know, it's like it's cool. Yeah, but. If I was to come around the corner with 50 pounds of pot and the DEA was standing there, it's a different situation. Yeah. Right. right? And, and so that's how it is in Texas. Like you can have automatic weapons and all sorts of stuff down here. Uh, and, and like what, and not automatic, but semi automatic weapons and stuff down here with high capacity clips. And apparently the ATF has outlawed some of them. But like I said, I didn't know. Wow. And so it's just bad luck. Well, the, that being the, the reason I got the charge, and I had to go do 15 months in federal prison for that shit. No and, way. Uh, Holy cow. Yeah, yeah. So, and so in 2010, Obama passed something called the Dodd-Frank Act. Yep. And the Dodd-Frank Act uh, invoked something called the, the CPFB and the NML. It's a bunch of acronyms like the government does, right? <laughs> but basically, they took mortgage license out of the hands of the state, what like used to go and apply for a license in the state of Texas, the state of Texas issued you the loan officer license. State of Texas, much like the gun, no problem giving me a license. I haven't done anything to break any kind of fiduciary duty with anybody. I just had a gun that I wasn't supposed to have. And the uh, feds said that the states no longer can do that. Now they're taking it over, and the feds refused to give me a damn license. And uh, they said that the rule was you couldn't have com committed a felony within seven years, and it had only been about three for me at that time. Gotcha. That's crazy. So, like, just yeah. red tape. Talk about some friggin' bad luck, man. <laughs> the worst possible time. Yeah, well, you know, uh, and in, in, in 2010, I didn't know what I was going to do. And so I went and talked to some real estate agents that I had been doing mortgages for, and I was going to ask them for a job, like, just being, like, an inside sales agent or something. Right. And uh, or maybe leading their, you know, their marketing team or something. Dude, I was devastated. I was making, you know, 300 grand a year and it was like swept out from under me. And much like everybody else in America, I've learned my lesson now, but much like everybody else in America, you make 100, 200, 300 grand a year. You are spending 10, 15 thousand dollars a month on like, let's break it down. If you make 300 thousand dollars a year, that's right at about 30 grand a month. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, what most people don't realize is when you make 30, the government takes about 14 of it. Mm -hmm. So then you're only left with about 16 left. If you have $10,000 in bills and then you go through $6,000 in going out and trips and like the things that people do, right? Because, or you put your kids in private school or whatever, I wasn't expecting to, to lose my job, you know? And, yeah. and, uh, I had a little bit in savings, but maybe like a couple of months living wages, and uh, and the bills weren't going anywhere, dude. So I was like in some dire straits and and went and spoke to these real estate agents and was like, hey, man, you know, what can I do to come work for y'all? And they're like, you should start teaching people how you do all these mortgage loans because I was really good at loans. And I did a bunch of them. like in 2009 when the world was crashing, I closed 183 transactions. So like I, I did have the mortgage game down pretty good. And I thought, you know what? 
I don't think anybody really cares about that. You know what I mean? Like you guys think it's cool, but like no nerd's going to like come pay me money to learn this stuff. It's not how it works. And they were like, no, dude, I'm pretty sure nobody does that. And I was like, all right. So I just like, I went home and I thought about it and, and I realized that they didn't want to give me a job. They wanted me to make, they wanted me to become one of their equals. Right. And so I made this product and you know, it sold and, and <clears throat> I made some mistakes along the way and obviously didn't get rich right away off of it. But I knew that there was a possibility to make money from the internet. And that was seven years ago. Now at this point we do, you know, we'll probably end up somewhere around five or six million dollars in gross sales just from the, the internet this year. And, and I have a flip business, a, a home alarm, uh, company that I own. I own a tech company. Uh, and then I own a, a rental property, uh, a, a rental property acquisition buy and hold company too. So I got my, my hands and everything. I literally went from, you know, being in prison to being back on top of the world to having my license taken away from me to being broke to like figuring out what in the world I'm going to do with my life to, you know, becoming a person that's they, like Forbes writes articles with they quote me and shit once a month. And it's like mind blowing that I, that, that even happens. But that's that's my story and how we're here now, strangely enough. Crazy. So so how, so how did that what did that look like for you? You you went and got your license then as a real estate agent after all this kind of came crumbling down on you. So, no, I didn't uh, – after all this came crumbling down on me, so like once I got out of prison, I, I, I still had my license. It was a state thing, and I went and did federal prison, so they never they, – they didn't discontinue my license. The licenses were active for like three or four years at a time. It's been a while now, obviously, but like three or four years at a time, so I didn't – it's kind of like a driver's license. You don't have to renew it, uh, but every so often. And so it just stayed – the 15 months that I was gone, it stayed active. When I got out, I, I just renewed it, and – uh and kept rolling on and then they they took it from me and I I didn't like back then in 2010 I think ISAs could still operate without having to have real estate license like they do now that 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 Dodd Frank thing that cost me the ability to originate mortgages changed things for a lot of the real estate company it wasn't just me that was affected I got you well, I guess you were training real estate agents yes yes so what happened was uh, and that was kind of by accident so what happens is I was teaching loan officers how to generate leads from Facebook because I had done a pretty good job of that, even though this was like way before anybody knew anything about like lead gen on Facebook. 2010, you would tell somebody you could get leads from Facebook. They'd like, do what? That place where our family's at? Right. It was just like different world back then. <laughs> right. and, uh, and they were, you know, they had a hundred million users versus a billion back then. So it was just completely uh, different atmosphere on Facebook than it is today. And people didn't want to talk business and everything, but I taught, loan officers, how to go on Facebook, become friends with agents, and then just start becoming digital friends with them and then ultimately working their way into maybe, you know, having coffee and, and the traditional old school stuff that I don't teach anymore, but that was what we started with, right? Gotcha. And and so, you know, we had, I did this program where it was like a thousand bucks and for six weeks, I was going to, you know, once a week for, for an hour a week, going to train a group of people on how I did my stuff through loans. And I sold like 10 of them, which is, you know, 10 grand and Sounds like a lot of money, but you know, uh, like I said, when you, we, the bills that I had weren't really going anywhere, so that just like barely floated me for another month. But after I had been teaching loan officers for about six months, I obviously some of the loan officers that I was teaching were having some some serious success, and the real estate agents that uh, saw these loan officers getting buyer leads were like, "Hey, do you think you could do that for for me too?" And so they started funneling them to me because, you know, they're like, yeah, but why don't you just hire Ryan or join our club or, 
or whatever the case. And so I went from just loan officers to like, okay, we'll let some agents into that makes sense. And, gotcha. and then from there, you know, we would take in an insurance person or a credit person, a credit repair person or two. And then, you know, now flash forward, like I said, seven years later, we've got business owners, entrepreneurs. I think to, we have a, a 110 people in our, our tribe mastermind, which is 30 grand a year. And I think the two people that join today, one of them owns a car dealership in uh, Iowa, and the other one owns a uh, air conditioning repair business in uh, Florida. Interesting. Well, so yeah, I mean, sales is sort of universal, right? It's applicable against multiple industries. It it is, and I and I'm like a, a very I know that people that say this usually aren't, but like I'm a very integrous person, and so I and the reason why I say this, I didn't want to teach people to sell something I'd never sold before. I, I, I uh, sold car washes. Nobody in that industry is paying for a sales coach. And, <laughs> and I had paid and I had done mortgages. And so it made sense for me to be able to say, Hey, I was successful in mortgages. Here's how I pulled it off. But when other people originally would hit me up, like I had some guys that were in the roofing business, which I love roofers now. I know how to help them. But back then they're like, can you help us with our roofing stuff? I'm like, dude, I know nothing about roofing stuff. And I, and I don't have any testimonials and, and I don't want to like promise you anything. And I've just kind of worked my way through the years. You know, people say, hey, I don't care if you promise me or anything. Just take my money. Let's see if it works out. We have a good case study, and then we open it up. But now, at this point, I know that my skills are transferable. I haven't found anything that we can't sell. We got people that sell private jet options like a, a net jet competitor, oh, wow. uh, people that are obviously real estate investors. There's a guy in the real estate investing world named Jason Lucchese. I helped him. Uh, write a book recently called Right Flippin' Now, and uh, I wrote the foreword for it. So we've been able to like help people, you know, just like you and and a lot of the listeners uh, that are uh, going to listen to this, and all the way down to the bankers that I originally started with, because it's still out of 110 people, I'd say 60 of them are still loan officers. So it's still pretty dominant with the the guys that I started with, which I think says a lot too, because a lot of people get ran out of a niche after you know two or three years. Sure. Yeah. Well, so I guess maybe break it down for us. What 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 are the keys to becoming a good salesperson? Yeah, so I, that's right in my wheelhouse, man. Thank you for teeing that up for me, Ken. Well, here's the key to making sales. It's one word, right? Like if you forget everything before I give you this one word, like if, if you forget every sales seminar, every sales video, everything that you've ever watched because like the guys like uh, – and I don't want to name any names to be like negative, but the guys that are, let's say, 45 years or older that have been in the sales training game for a few years, like a few meaning 10 or more. And there's only a few of those guys left, but we'll just call them the old school trainers, right? Yep. Those guys grew up in a different time, man, when you had to hit the phone book, when you had to call people out of newspaper ads before social media, before sales funnels, before SEO, like – they, they, they grew up in a, in a different world. So like we, I've been through pretty much, I've read as many sales books as anybody else. I, I still invest. I paid 30 grand this year to go learn how to close from the stage from one of the world's greatest stage speakers, Marshall Silver. Like I invest in my education still from other salespeople. But here's what I know. It's like all that stuff's out the window because the, the days of cold calls and door knock, like I live in Texas, you knock on my door, you, you know, you might find yourself in trouble. You not not on my house because I don't have guns anymore. My neighbor's house, you'd probably run into a gun. I mean, seriously, we live in a nice neighborhood. If you were to somehow make it to our front door, you'd be like, what the hell are you doing here? Uh, if you call me and I know you and like you, I still may not answer my phone, <laughs> right. let alone if I don't know your number. And 
And so the world's changed. So here's what it takes to make sales. Like forget everything you've ever heard before. It's one word, one word only. And that word is empathy. Because here's the thing, not sympathy, but empathy. Empathy means that you have, you understand where somebody's coming from. Like you feel them, right? You feel me? Yeah, I feel you. You understand? I understand. And so once a person knows, like you are, if you're selling something, whether you're working in a retail store, whether you're sitting inside of somebody's house that's going into foreclosure and you're trying to convince them to sign the contract with you so that you can flip the thing and make money. And, and basically they're thinking screw them out of money that they may be able to get in the future, right? Because that's the mindset. Sure. And, and so that one word empathy is huge because that's that, hey, I understand your situation. Mm-hmm. And if you're selling something, you're most likely in – I mean we live in amongst idiots right now. I mean the, the internet has really made us to where we don't do a lot of our own thinking, okay? And and so when people see you and they're like, well, this person does this. They've got some experience in it. They must be an expert. So if I can trust this person as an expert, I need them to understand my situation. And so in order to get it, it so that they can make that decision with you, right, they already trust you as the expert. They just want to make sure that you understand their specific position or situation. And the thing is, like, that's what empathy is all about. It's like, I understand where you're coming from. A lot of salespeople say that. The old school t- sales trainer, like Tom Sherman, for, uh, or Tom Sherman, uh, Tom Hopkins, for example, great guy. But he's, he's like, in his speech, he's always said, I understand where you're coming from, sir. Absolutely. I understand, sir. Because he's showing them that you have empathy and that that's huge. And once a person understands that you understand, because we all think we're special, right? We grew up, everybody get trophies and all that stuff that they say about us. But the thing is, like, we all think that we're special. And if somebody understands our special situation, we're more likely to trust them to make a decision on our behalf because they understand our behalf. Mm-hmm. And so you, your, your people might think, OK, well, how do you prove that you got empathy for somebody? You ask them questions. And when you ask them questions, you ask them open ended questions. So they give you long winded answers, because the more they talk, the more close, the closer they are to closing the sale. And you want to get that client to talk them because how can you understand their situation? How can you have empathy if they didn't talk to you about it? Mm-hmm. And so every like if you're going in and you're going to buy a house wholesale or if you're going in and you're going to buy a house from a foreclosure person and you want to negotiate, the first thing you need to say, hey, what brought you to foreclosure? What's your plans next? How are you going to take care of yourself? Where are you going to live? Well, what happened to get you in this situation? Why do you feel that way? What are you going to do? And then when they tell you why they're there, what happened? And what their plans are next, you're like, okay, here's how I can help you get those next plans and forget about what happened in the past. But if you don't ask them and don't understand that, then you can never have that empathy. They know you don't give a shit or care about them, and they're not going to make moves. That's just how people operate these days. Yeah. I mean, that's spot on. You know, I'm thinking, obviously, in the context of, you know, motivated sellers, because most of our listeners, you know, they're trying to find off-market properties. And, uh, you know, there's a there's a guy in our industry, too, that does some sales training named John Martinez, and, and he basically mirrors exactly what you're saying. You know, when you go in there and you talk to a motivated seller, it really is all about them and helping them solve whatever situation they're in. And the only way to do that is to understand it and empathize. And the more, he uses the exact same word, the more you empathize with their situation, the more likely it is that they're going to trust you. And I guess that that's going to be true across all industries. That is it. Man, that's, that's solid. So, uh, just give us an idea of, 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 you know, in terms of using empathy in other sales scenarios. So you're working with how many different industries right now in Hardcore Closer? Uh, probably 20, yeah, probably conservatively 20 different industries. And in any industry, essentially what you're, you're selling yourself and you're selling a product or a service. Mm-hmm. And No, 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 no. I, I think differently. I think that you're selling 
the results of what the client wants. I think a product or a service is usually a bridge to get a result. Gotcha. And uh, I, I don't mean to cut you off or interrupt no, no, I like you. That. I mean, it's I like just, that. that's, that's just my thinking, you know, and, and, uh, because I don't think that people care about salespeople. They make movies about us making fun of us all the time. Right. And I mean, the greatest example of an awesome sales movie is Tommy boy, where it's like a fat guy that everybody makes fun of the whole time. But it's like the greatest thing. He like learns a craft. He's in a situation, masters his craft, saves the village, wins the girl. It's like the ultimate sales movie, but everybody's focused on like Wolf of Wall Street. So, which I like Jordan, but I mean, obviously that shows the degenerate side of our industry as well. You know what I mean? Which hey, I partake in, I get it. You know what I mean? We party and all that stuff over here too. We just left Miami and, and I understand, but we don't have the best shining examples out there. And that's the public's perception of us so the we we always say here at break free academy it's like you want to hide the salesman yeah right you want to put all these things in place these you know websites videos all these like standoffish things and hide the salesman until the person says hey i'd like to talk to a salesperson like if you go into uh i live in dallas so neiman marcus is a really fancy boutique here mm-hmm. uh very expensive store if you go in there they don't bother you you look around you pick up something and they might ask you, hey, do you, would you like to see that in your size or whatever the case may be? But they're waiting until you come to them and you say, hey, I'd like to try this on. Oh, awesome. Then they treat you like the freaking king. But they're not there like pressuring you or anything. I think that's how people shop these days. And I know that some salespeople listen to you. He's like, no, man, you know, this guy's a hardcore closed read sounds all soft and stuff. But I don't I think as long as the result is that the fact that they exchange money with me, what words and how fancy I talk and how pressurized or polarizing I can be has nothing to do with it. As long as I can get them to admit that they need the result that my product or service uh, can present for them, that can you know can can uh, make happen for them, that's all that really matters. And, and you know the days of having to be a, a fast talker and smooth jazz and all like you don't have to do that anymore. Just ask some questions. You know, so you're you're kind of branding yourself under the hardcore closer. I'm curious since you brought it up, what. What are some techniques for actually closing the sale? Because really, at the end of the day, you can have a great you know, rapport with somebody and empathize with them, but you still got to go for the close. What does that look like? Well, the close is the grand finale in a series of small agreements, right? The close is the grand finale where money's exchanged. And you have to break your sales process down into those smaller agreements. What's the first agreement? It might be look at my ad. The second agreement might be read the words on my ad. The third agreement might be do what I've told you to do in the ad. The fourth agreement might be enter your information on the website you click from the ad and so on and so forth. Those are all yeses that we're getting along the way. Those are all little sales. We've sold them to look at the ad. We've sold them to read it. We've sold them to click. We've sold them to opt in. We've sold them to follow up. We've sold them to answer the phone when we call them. And you have to look at it that way. And then the close is the grand finale. But if you've handled all these little agreements along the way and you've got, and you've satisfactorily got all these agreements to go well, they like the ad, they click, they like the phone call, they talk with you, you provide the solution, you've got the empathy. The close is just, it's really the easiest part because you've done all the legwork first. A lot of people fear the close because they jump into it. Just like jumping straight to the close and not going through that process that I just, and whatever your process might be, but a similar process that I just laid out would be the equivalent of going to a bar, walking up to a chick and being like, Hey babe, you want to go home with me? Like, sure. It's going to work sometimes, you know, with like the, the, not the chick that you probably want to wake up next to in the morning. Uh, but if you were to sit down, buy her a drink, talk to her, you know, tell her you love kids and dogs and all the things that you got to do and then go out on a first date and then go out on the second date and then finally be able to, you know, do the deed. Well, it's going to be pretty easy to get them in the sack versus the aggression you're going to run at. If you just sit down and start asking them to go home with you, same thing in sales, you know? 
So at some point, though, just, there is an ask. You, you've kind of built there this is level an ask. Of, of trust, and then it, but it's, it's still in your mind, it's a soft ask. It is because I, I think this, like, if I know, like, Ken, you're buying from me, I know I can fix your problem. And I know that I've shown you all along the way that like, oh yeah, for sure that I can handle this. And you know that I know you're, you're, that I can solve your problem. Like it, it's not, so, I give you a, a good real life example. Tonight I'm going to go meet this guy for dinner and uh, he hits me up and he says, my, my, he coaches real estate. He said, my, my coaching business is maxed out the way that I'm doing it. I got to figure out something else, man. And I need your help. And I said, that's cool. Uh, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to sit down, we're going to have dinner and then we'll get you to sign over the first payment for the 30 grand to join the deal. And like I've known this guy for a minute, and I've I've been going through this sale. He started from seeing an ad, then he went to a website, then he came to an event, and he's just kind of been around. And I didn't I wasn't afraid to ask that because his answer was, yeah, I'll bring my checkbook and credit card with me. Which one do you prefer, right? And so it, I didn't feel like I was trying to close the guy. I was like, hey, the next natural progression step that we got to take is to exchange more money and get the results you want. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. So it is. It's a. It is a. It's a build up. It's a. It's a level of trust rapport before you even get to the ask. Yeah. You know, so I'll give you one last like good parable for it. Like my boys, I have a, a three young boys and they take karate and in karate, you know, you're kicking and hitting and sweep kicking and jumping and, and punching and all this stuff. And, uh, and that's all good. They need to, they need to know that stuff. I grew up taking a keto. You come and hit at me. You're just going to miss me and fall on the ground. And, and, and I'm not going to be hurt and you're probably not going to be hurt. And you, and it's the, that's probably going to be the end of any confrontation that we have. And I think the same thing about sales, instead of going in there and trying to hit and kick and punch somebody and playing sales karate or hand to hand combat sales, we can go in and we can play a keto with their objections to the point to where they're like, okay, cool. I don't want to be thrown anymore. I'm in. <laughs> that's good. I like that analogy. Uh, so, you know, you've thrown a lot, a lot of uh, jargon around like, uh, you know, clicking here and funnels there. I mean, obviously what you're alluding to is, is a lot of sales these days is, is made online. What percentage of the guys that you're coaching right now, is it really a matter of coaching how, how to build a sales funnel online? A hundred percent. It is. 200%. Yes. Gotcha. So that's, I mean, that's a big part because I guess even to, to, to get somebody on the phone to, to, to sell them, you first, you have to find them. And I guess these days it really is about farming on the internet. It is. And, you know, uh, all we're trying to do is just get people to stick their hand up. It's like uh, we keep putting an ad out there and we got a good targeted audience. A hundred thousand people are going to see it. Ten thousand people are going to click on it. One thousand people are going to become leads and we're going to close 10 or 15 deals from it. That's just, you know, predictable numbers that that are out there. And there's companies like I, I was reading uh, Ad Week the other day and there's companies like uh, uh, now that I say that, I forget my whole the, with, oh, Procter and Gamble. And uh, it, with companies like Procter & Gamble, they own Colgate and all these other stuff. They've allotted 80% of their advertising budget to online marketing, wow. right? So, like, you think about that. If the big dogs are putting 80% of their budget online, that means that it's working because big dogs and Fortune 500 companies and, and places like P&G, they have really smart data scientists that have figured out and scaled everything for them. And if they're getting a better bang for their buck with digital advertising, you can bet that you will as well. Now, how Besides, much of, nobody's nobody's reading newspapers or billboards or or you know like I read Adweek on my uh, on my uh, iPad. You know what I mean? So uh, it's like it you know it makes sense that everything would convert online. Well, everything. I mean, even in the last five years, I mean, you alluded to that. 
everything is social media now. I mean, it didn't it yep. didn't used to be that. Even just five short years ago. So, I mean, most of the the sales training that you're you're coaching on that you're implementing is it is it primarily social media? Well, yes, primarily social media because it's more efficient than than offline marketing. Yeah. You know, in the time that I drive to meet somebody for coffee at Starbucks or whatever, I could have had a, a thirty minute conversation with them on Facebook and close them. Yeah. Yeah. And Facebook will allow you to do FaceTime, videos, voicemail, text messages, post on somebody's wall. I mean, dude, every it, it has the capability to communicate with people better than we can face to face anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely seems like where it's at. Yep. Well, you've obviously perfected this over the last several years and, and had the opportunity to train a lot of folks. Is there one deal that you've done, whether real estate or not, that you would kind of categorize as your best deal ever? Man, you know, I got a really hot wife, but outside of <laughs> that, that <counts>. yeah. <laughs> um, but outside of that, one time we uh, we bought a house here in Dallas for like I think it was like two hundred and fifty grand, and somebody had died in the house, and the family didn't know what to do with it, and we ended up flipping the house. I think for four forty five was the final sale, and we only put like maybe five grand in paint oh and gosh. stuff where the the dead body in it was, and it was in a great neighborhood, so. I think that's the most I have. And I had to split it three ways, but I ended up making like 40 or 50 grand. But it's a, a gross whole deal. That 200 grand that we took before taxes was probably the best that I've ever done. That's that's solid for sure. What what was the kind of scenario in terms of finding that house? Uh, so it was – there's a little-known site that I'm not going to share, but there's a little-known site here in uh, Dallas where they put – uh, crime and auction and tax lien and stuff like that that's going on in Dallas County. And this old man had died in this house, and he kind of rotted because he met family and stuff like that. Oh. And uh, and so finally, when when they when the county went out there to foreclose on him, uh, they found him in there, and then they deemed it a hazard. So the house is sitting there abandoned with like you know uh, biohazard tape and shit like that around it. So. Uh, and I just found this was in like 2004 or five. It was a long time ago. Yeah. And uh, so still the bet my best deal all this time later. But, uh, but I'll never forget going in there. All we had to do was like clean out the pool, paint the room that the dude had died in the, in the chair in because it was like, eh, whatever, you know, but, uh, not to get all weird. And then we just turned around and flipped it with the seller's disclosure saying that, you know, someone passed away in it. Oh my gosh. It, it's always, you know, the, the deals that, you make the most money on are the ones that nobody else wants to touch. And nobody, nobody wanted the dead body. Apparently that's it, man. Nobody wanted the hassle of, of, and the stigma, but I didn't care. You know what I mean? It's like, Hey, we'll just clean all the stuff up. Get it out of here. People die. People die in houses every day. Right. Right. right, right. Sure, nothing to be worried about. Well, and obviously your end buyer didn't care either. You disclosed it and they still bought the house. So who cares? Exactly. Exactly. That's a good one. Now, so fast, right, too, man, really? we made that money fast too. Yeah. Cause I think, even at 4.45, it was still like you know maybe another hundred grand under the market price. But I felt guilty, honestly, at this time in my life because you know I had only been making any kind of serious kind of six-figure money for you know less than two years at that point. But I felt guilty making 300 grand from the deal. It's like, well, let's just stop at 200. It's jam. Don't you think that's enough? It's only been like 30 days. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Now that's a home run, man, for any any real estate investor. 200 grand with only five grand in repairs. That's a good buy, if you ask me. Yep. Hey, yep. so you had mentioned that uh, earlier when we were speaking that you have a book you might want to give out. Oh yeah, I'd like to give uh, all the listeners a, a copy of my best-selling uh, book on sales. That's that's odd. I don't guess I've ever said it that way, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, we've we've sold about twenty thousand copies of it. It's uh, elevatortothetop.com. Elevatortothetop.com. Go there. It's not an ebook. It's a paperback book. We'll ship you a free copy of the paperback book. 
sign up, then you can go through our, our, that's part of our funnel. You'll see all the other stuff that we offer as well, but get the book, read the book, implement the book. It's going to teach you how to create empathy. It's going to teach you how to close sales. And whether you make $10 million a year or $10 a year, it's like everything you know, need to know from like day one to retirement, uh, in the sales game. So you'll, uh, you plus, um, uh, you know, kind of an entertaining kind of person. I got funny characteristics and I like humor and stuff like that. So it's a fun read. It's not some boring typical sales book. There's lots of talk of drug use and, and maybe loose decisions and, and things like that in there as well. So. That sounds entertaining. The sales and drug use, man, they go hand in hand, right? They do. They do. <laughs> Ryan, this has been an awesome interview, man. Thanks so much for coming to the deal farm. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Ken. I've, uh, I've enjoyed hanging out and talking. All right, buddy. Take care. Hey folks, it's Ken again, and I want to talk to you for just a quick second about becoming a private lender with our company, Georgia Residential Partners. If you've got money right now sitting on the sidelines, maybe it's in a bank account earning less than 1%, or maybe it's in the stock market and you're worried about where the stock market is headed, you might want to consider becoming a private lender with our company. Where you might be getting 1% to 2% on a CD or a money market account right now, when you become a private lender with us, you're actually well into the double digits in terms of return on investment. Again, if you've got money that's not working for you right now, it's sitting on the sidelines and you want to get it into investment that's safe, that's passive and has the opportunity to get you well into the double digits, please reach out to me. You can actually contact us through our website at dealfarm.net. Go to the contact us page. It goes right into my inbox and I will reply and set up a time to talk. Thanks so much for listening to The Deal Farm. We'll see you in the next episode. Take care.